0: Let's pray. God, you are holy, holy, holy. You are the Lord God Almighty. Without you, Lord, we are, we are lost. We don't have a future. We don't have a hope without you. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love us. Thank you you sent us Jesus. God, as we look now at uh, the book of Galatians again, just pray, God, that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds, that we would hear what it is that you have to say through us through through Paul. Help us to uh, understand uh, in a way that's just deeper than thinking about it, that's a way that we know who you are, how you feel about us, and uh, how it is that we can live for you. So, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather. Thank you to for the opportunity we have to study together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, before we get into Galatians 4, there's a couple of things that we have that we get to uh, celebrate a little bit. Uh, the first one, well, a couple of things we should talk about. The first one we get to celebrate, and that is, you heard last Sunday we uh, we told you that uh, one of the security team for Pastor Dr. Julio Volsi in Haiti uh, had been taken hostage on a failed attempt to take uh, kidnap and take Dr. Julio hostage. We found out yesterday uh, his name is Junior, and he has been released unharmed and he's back home. So thank you for your prayers and thank you, Jesus. And then I uh, had some interesting conversations with some of you through the week about how else do we pray for Israel? How do we understand what's going on? The first thing I would commend to you is uh, there's a passage in the book of Esther, Old Testament book of Esther, uh, really uh, picks up speed in chapter 3. Uh, about how old this conflict really is. Uh, you will read there, Persia is a country that's named, and Haman is the name of a man. Persia is modern-day Iran, and that'll give you a good history for how long this has really been going on. I encourage all of you to pray for the Holy Land, not just the, the Jewish people, but the Holy Land, all of it, because it's all of God's land. And what's happening is just a tragedy on an epic human scale. And so I would ask you to please continue to play, pray for the Holy Land and the people who live there. Pray for uh, this, this conflict that's going on. The Bible tells us specifically to pray for Jerusalem. And so in the book of Psalms it says to pray for Jerusalem. So let's keep praying for Jerusalem. With that, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're in Galatians. We're going to start in chapter 4. But I'm going to touch on the end of chapter 3. This is where we left off last week. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you." Paul is going to pick up that theme as we keep moving now. But what we need to understand is that if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have said, Jesus, I understand that I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. I believe in You. I trust in You. I want to live for You. You have been redeemed and been made righteous because of Jesus. Paul's message last week, it's not your good works, it's not how hard you try, it's not all the good things you do. It's not like there's this heavenly tally of good versus bad. It's only got one thing to do with any of it, and that is, does Jesus know you? Have you given your life to Him? Paul goes on in chapter 4, and he's getting, sounds like a little bit frustrated and a little bit desperate, trying to figure out how to get people to understand. He's passionate. This is a church full of people that he knows personally, and they're being led astray. In fact, he started last week with chapter 3. You foolish Galatians! I made the statement that Paul was writing a letter to us in America. He would probably start it. You foolish Americans! Have you forgotten... Well, he's going to go on and he's going to continue here in chapter 4. And he's trying to make his point clear. He's doing the best he can to get the people to see. Think of it this way, he says. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything that the father has. Think about it today. It's an estate. Maybe some of you grew up and had a trust. Maybe you still have a trust. You still have money. Uh, It's a legal thing where you are able to secure a parent's assets and make sure that they're transferred to the next generation. But see, parents and attorneys are smart. They don't let you have it when you're seven. There's a guardian to that trust. And the guardian's job is to make sure that that money is well cared for, that it's invested, and, and that ideally there's more of it than there was when the trust was created until you reach an age where your parents say at 18, eh, maybe not, 21, possibly 37, more than likely, you're smart enough to be able to handle the money on your own. In the meantime, there's a guardian that takes care of that while you grow up. Paul is using that as an example. That you've got everything you have coming to you has your name on it because it has your father's name on it and your father's given it to you. But until you're able to make the big decisions for yourself, there's something somebody else that's taking care of it. Those children, verse 2, have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world well number one we know that we were in bondage to sin that outside of jesus we can't live a life that is anything but a sinful life and even with jesus our sins are forgiven and we continue to sin but he talks about the basic spiritual principles of this world if you don't know jesus yet that doesn't mean you're not a good person being a christian doesn't mean you've got a market on being the good person in the world Being a Christian means that we try to model our lives and live for Jesus as our example. But for all of the people who are not Christians, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad people. They still have rules. If you remember your life before you became a Christian, you probably considered yourself to be moral. That was a rule. You set the morality, but you had morality. You had ethics. Spiritual principles that were basic that you said, here's the boundaries that I'm going to live by. Here's where I'm going to live my life. Maybe it was following the stars. Maybe it was the planets. Maybe it was other religions. Maybe you read some of the Old Testament and you said, I'm going to keep the Old Testament laws really, really carefully. I'm going to follow all the festivals and all the feasts because that's what they did before Jesus came. That's the old spiritual principles that the world was under. Paul grew up under them. Paul knew them better than anybody. And he says, you know what? Those aren't the things that save you. Even the ceremonies, even the the, the big religious things of the Jewish people, he said, that's not it. He goes on in verse 4, he says, when the time came, God's appointed time. Now here's what's important. You're not a mistake. However it is that you got here today, you're not a mistake. God has a plan for your life. Maybe you know him personally, maybe you don't. According to God's perfect timing and God's plan, you're going to be able to step into that. And here's what he says. When the right time came, God sent His Son from heaven, born of a woman. That's important. Because God sent Jesus from heaven, but He was born of a woman just like all of us were. What He's making the statement is that Jesus isn't just like all of us, but Jesus entered the world the way that we all did. Born of a woman, subject to the law. Mary, who when the angel came and said, Mary... Uh, God is pleased with you. The way that you've lived your life has pleased God and here's what's going to happen. She was a good Jewish girl. She kept the laws. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. That Son came to earth through a woman. That woman was subject to Jewish law. Her son, Jesus, was subject to Jewish law. Jesus lived His entire life under Jewish law. Jesus kept the festivals, he kept the feasts, he observed all of them. But then it says God sent him to buy freedom for us. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, lived under Jewish law. And the only thing that he did different from anybody else that had ever lived or has ever lived since is he kept the law perfectly. Jesus never broke the law. He never stepped to the left or the right of it once. Jesus was perfect. Those religious people had all of these laws, all these rules. It was impossible for people to follow them, And that's how they kept the the oppression on the Jewish people. Because they could always point out that you had broken a law. You weren't perfect. You're living really good, but you didn't do this. You didn't do that. And they had this oppression. They kept people under Jesus never broke a law. He lived today. He never sped. He never went 62 in a sixty. Never kind of cheated a little bit in a text. Never even took a pencil home from work. Jesus was perfect. And Paul says that he came to earth to buy our freedom for us who were slaves to the law. How did he buy our freedom for us? That perfect man, perfection, literally perfection, who had never done anything wrong, went to the cross and died the death of a sinner for you and I. Perfection went to the cross and paid the price for our sins, bought our freedom because we were slaves to the law so that He could adopt us as His very own children. God purchased us. God paid the price for our sin with the life of His own Son, Jesus. So if you're a Christian, if you have put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, you have been purchased, you have been made righteous, you have been redeemed, you have been paid for By the blood of Jesus. Paul's going to start using some other language to help us understand that, but let that kind of sink in for a moment. That your sin is not nearly as important as your Savior. And your Savior gave His life, even while you were a sinner, for you. So that He could adopt us as His very own children. And because we are His children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts Prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, Daddy is the word in Aramaic. So what does that all mean? Well, there was this law in Roman times, patria protesta. And patria protesta was father's rights. It was a law that talks about the father's power. If you translate it directly, be the Father's power. What did it mean? It meant that a Roman father had 100% authority over his children until he gave them the right to become adults and that they were on their own. That means that he could buy them or sell them. He could put them into slaves. He could even pronounce a death penalty on his own child because he had the right to do that. Patria protestus. Father's rights are everything. So now when he starts talking about adopting us, He's starting to use something that these folks really understand. And what did a Roman adoption mean? Why did they do it? Well, like in other parts of the world, if you'd achieved or had anything at all in the world, you wanted to make sure that it went to the next generation of your family. Things haven't changed. Why was it so difficult for Abraham and Sarah? Because they had no kids. Because for everything that they had accumulated, all of the wealth, it was just going to disappear. They had no one to give it to. And the wealth always went to the oldest son. This idea of being adopted means that when you're adopted into a Roman family, whatever that father has goes to that child. That was why they went through the adoption, to make sure that their name continued. So you maybe had been born to someone else somewhere else and did had a completely different last name, but the parents chose you, you became adopted, now you had all the rights of a regular born-in-the-family blood relative. You were that family. When Paul talks about adoption here in our world, sometimes it gets a little bit mixed up. When Paul talks about it to the people he's talking to, it is very, very, very clear. To be adopted is to be chosen. And when you're chosen, just like putting on new clothing like you talked about last week, you get a new life. You may have been brought up with this last name, but when this father adopted you, you now took on his last name and all the rights, all the privileges, all the responsibilities that they have are now yours. You may not get to to possess all of them because you're underage. But you become in every way a child. And that's what Paul is talking about. And he says, so now you're no longer a slave, but God's own child. What were we a slave to? We were a slave to sin. And since you are his child, God has made you into his heir. You have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You may have the last name, but you don't have the same life. You may have the same past you've always had, but you don't have the same future. What your life is from here is very different because of God. To be adopted is to be chosen. To be adopted is that the parents choose the child before maybe the child even totally knows the parents. The parents say, yes, I'm going to love this kid and I'm going to make them mine. We're going to bring them into our house and they're going to be our child forever. No difference from the other kids. When Paul says this, that's what the people understood. But here's the thing. We have a hard time as adults understanding adoption if we've never been through adoption, either as a child or or as a parent. Here's what Paul would want us to know. If you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, you've been adopted, you've been redeemed, you've been given a new name. Christian means to be a Christ follower. You've literally been given a new name when you gave your life to Jesus. Which means you have not just a new name, but new rights, New privileges, a new future, a new eternity. But you know what some of us do? We never let go of the past. Sometimes people are baptized and we talk about them being a new creation. And this is your, it's not just your second chance, it's your best chance. This is the one that Jesus gives you all of the sin that you have walked into today. with Jesus forgives and you get a new start, you become a new creation. You are a, you're a child of God. But what we do as people, we kind of get stuck in who we were. And rather than letting that adoption carry all the weight that it does, we think, wow, now that I'm a Christian and I'm reading the Bible, I understand sin. Oh, my goodness, am I a mess. I've done so much to so many people that God's not happy with. I, 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 I can't get away from it. I can't, I can't sleep at night. You know what? Once you've been purchased and redeemed and forgiven, all of that's in your past. Whatever is in your past does not define your future. But sometimes we can't let it go. We don't let that adoption become everything that it is meant to become when God adopts us. Sometimes you say, well, I'm a sinner. I'll always be a sinner. I've been divorced and I know I messed up so much. And God and, and my family are just so not happy with me. I can't get past it. I can't step into the new future. Uh, Maybe it's, I'm an alcoholic and I'm afraid that I'm going to be for the rest of my life and I can't step into my new future. I'm an addict and I'm afraid that I'm going to be. I like to steal stuff from my office because it's always just there and I'm always going to do it. We can't step into the new life because we're not willing to let go of the past. But when God says that you're adopted, you are made one of His children a son or a daughter. Whatever you were in the past, you can leave in the past. Because you've been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And the only thing that could make that not worth everything is us not being willing to make it worth everything. It says, Before you Gentiles knew God, God, you were slaves to the so-called gods that don't even exist. You were slaves to the so-called gods that don't even exist. Small g. How often do we serve things? And what Paul means when he says gods that don't exist, it means that gods that don't exist in eternity. A god is something that you worship that, that lasts forever. Our God, capital G, our creator and redeemer, has been here forever and will be here forever. He said, You worship gods that don't even exist. How many things do we worship? Do we give our time and our attention and our money to that end the moment we die? They stay right here on earth and they go to somebody else, which means they weren't even yours in the first place. You were a steward of those things. He talks about gods that don't even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, Paul says, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? So often we take that gift that God gives us in our redemption and salvation and we say, but I miss my old life. I miss what I used to do. I miss my friends. I miss living that way. We give it all up and we backslide and just become exactly who we were. Why in the world would we take our adoption and walk away from a family that chose us to go back into a life while we were slaves, while we were slaves to sin? Why would we do that? You're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. Maybe they're worshiping Jewish festivals and feasts and calendars. Maybe they're worshiping the stars. Maybe they're worshiping the the horoscope or the zodiac, the things that count time but don't mean anything. Then Paul gets to the heart of it. And this got me, uh, I told you last Sunday, I might get some emails. and I had some great conversations this week with people who didn't agree with me. And that's all right. You don't have to agree with me. I just need to be able to make sure that I'm grounded in God's Word. And Paul's next phrase here means so much. He says, I fear for you. I don't like standing up here saying things that you might not agree with. I don't like saying things that might rub you the wrong way or go against what you believe or stand what you want to live as your truth or maybe you've brought them in as part of your old morals and ethics or whatever it is. But Paul says, I fear for you. I think anybody with a pastor's heart fears for people. I fear for me. I, I, I fear how easy it is for me to slide away. And I fear for you and my job is to tell you, here's what God's Word said and here's what it means in your life. I'm not even going to say I'm sorry if you don't like it. I'm going to say that's part of my responsibility. Paul says, I fear for you. Perhaps all of my hard work with you was for nothing. I don't know of a pastor who cares about people who hasn't had that thought. Perhaps all of my hard work for you has been for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He knew the law better than anybody because he was a leading rabbi under the training of the leading rabbi. And he says, I became like you. I gave it all up free from those laws. Faith in Jesus alone. Good works aren't going to get you there, folks. Faith in Jesus is all we have. He says, you didn't, and he's talking about being a minister now. You didn't mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you didn't despise me or turn me away. It makes me wonder how Paul showed up with the Galatians. My guess is he wouldn't have gotten a TV show and he wouldn't have had a big national following as a televangelist. Something about him didn't look right. Or they're thinking, you know, if you're going to be this big preacher, you got to look better than that. You don't dress right or you talk funny or whatever it is. He says, but you didn't mistreat me. I tried to bring you the good news even when I was sick. You didn't mistreat me. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you didn't despise me or turn me away. No. You took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus Himself. They treated Him well. But then he says, where is that joy and grateful spirit you felt then? I'm sure you would have taken your own eyes out and given them to me if if it had been possible. Where is that joy and grateful spirit you felt then, when you first became a Christian, you felt different. Maybe you were a, a, a crockpot Christian and you spent a long time on a low simmer before you finally decided to give your love to, life to Jesus. Then I met some microwave Christians. You just heard the good news and boom, that's what I want. That's going to be my life. Either way, when you meet Jesus and Jesus becomes real to you, you're changed in that moment, you're changed. You can't have a a personal encounter with Jesus and not be changed. If you haven't been changed because of Jesus, your personal encounter was probably held back by you, not by Him. And and there's this joy and there's this gratitude and there's this realization of who I've been and how I've been living. God, I don't want to do that anymore. That life is a dead-end road and I know it, but I just keep pushing down it because it's the only thing that I know. He says, where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? So often it's the church that knocks the joy out of us. You know, I wonder. Twenty-five, Almost 25 years of ministry, you know, I've, I've yet to meet someone. You can think about this. If you've ever said, I've been hurt by church, I've been hurt by the church. I've been angry with God because I've been hurt by the church. I have heard that hundreds of times. So much of what this place has been about is trying to understand and address that. But I would be willing to bet if you think about when you've been hurt by the church, the church had nothing to do with it because it's a building. What you were were hurt by is someone who you trusted as a brother or sister in faith. You were hurt by a person. It was what a person did that you believed that what you understood as a Christian, they shouldn't do. Maybe they lorded authority over you. Maybe they pretended they were spiritually superior. Maybe they told you you weren't good enough or they told you you were a sinner or whatever it was. There was no grace involved and they were mean. We don't get hurt by the church. We get hurt by people. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit? I'm sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. They were so happy that Paul was there. They treated him so well they would have taken their eyes out, he said, if you could have done that. And he says, have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? It's amazing how quickly that tide can turn. Maybe when you first became a Christian, the first person you met, the one that you looked up to in the faith and that walked you to meet Jesus and spent all that time with you, suddenly didn't want to have anything to do with you anymore. They just weren't there. You were on your own. Go figure it out now. They were on to the next person. Where did that joy go? Paul says, where did that joy go? Have I become your enemy? And that happens. And as Christians, we have to guard against it and not let that happen. We have to be the ones that maintain the joy. Not the ones that become enemies of people because they tell the truth. Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They want you to follow them, but what they're trying to accomplish isn't good for you. They're trying to shut you off from me, Paul says, so that you will pay attention only to them. Nothing has changed in the world. Look to the fruit, not to what they say, but look to the fruit of whatever their ministry is. If someone's eager to do good things for you, that's all right, but let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Remember there was that situation with Peter and James. Eating with the Gentiles, hanging out with the Gentiles, and all of a sudden the Jerusalem church showed up and wouldn't do it anymore. He said, figure out who you're going to be. And he called him out. Do what you're going to do all the time, not just when you're being watched. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. (laughs) I said this first service. I think today Paul would be in a lot of trouble if he made that statement. Because every one of you women that have been through labor pains goes, "Uh uh-uh, you don't have a clue, buddy. He says, I feel like I'm in labor pains for you. Obviously, he doesn't. He doesn't have any idea what that means. But here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to speak to what would traditionally be a very male audience. He's trying to say, women, you're involved in this too. Brothers and sisters, it's about all of us. Paul is acknowledging he has no idea what labor pains mean. There's no way he could. None of us men could. But he's including the women in this. And he's saying, I feel for you so strongly. And he says, they'll continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. He said, I am going to worry about you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be concerned for you until you mature as Christians. So I wish I was there with you right now so that I could change my tone. Something about how Paul is writing it is stressed, is maybe a little irritated, is certainly passionate. But he says, at this distance, I don't know how to help you. I'm a loss to help, is what he's saying. But that issue of adoption, if we understood that as Christians, I think it would change the way that we live our faith dramatically. Uh, when Data and I first started talking about having kids, you know, there's a conversation you want a boy or girls, right? Data goes, girls. Steve goes, boys. God, in his wisdom, chose to give us two amazing young women. We got two daughters. It was great. Uh, they asked me often, still to this day, they're their uh, they're own adults now, and they said, Do you wish you had had sons? I said, No, I got two amazing daughters because you know what my daughters gave me? Two amazing sons. They gave me two amazing son in laws. Uh, Jordan and Michael know Jesus. They love Jesus. They live for Jesus. They love our daughters. They're amazing. They have their own parents. I don't get to adopt them, they get to be part of my family. And I think it's so awesome thinking these two additions that, that, that we kind of graft in, we kind of adopted in our own way because our girls fell in love and chose them. And I think that's got to be getting to it a little bit. But even that can't be it. Because adoption is really about parenthood. God is using the word father, Abba, father, daddy, and he's talking about adoption. And so, you know, I, I'm not adopted. I know my mom and dad. Some of you are. Some of you have adopted children and some of you are children who have been Adopted. And I don't completely understand the range of emotions and the feelings and and all that goes through with that. But here's what I know. When a parent chooses to adopt a child, they choose the child. They love the child before the child is even a part of their family. And and the notion of being adopted is so strong. This language is so strong. I've had the privilege of uh, a couple, three times, I think, actually, to write letters for couples who want to adopt a child that maybe they've had in foster care or maybe just is whatever is available in the system. They aren't able to have children of their own. And I've gotten to write reference letters. And twice I've actually gotten to go to the courtroom. And it's a pretty amazing thing on that day when the judge has the child who's going to be adopted and the parents and a whole bunch of other people who are there as spectators. And he starts explaining, do you know what adoption means? And he says to the little kids, he says, do you know, do you know what this is? Do you want to live with them as your mom and dad forever? Yep, for sure. Do you like it in their house? Yes. Do, do you feel like you'll fit in and you could be a part of that family? Yeah. And, and the five-year-old isn't thinking, yes, I want the money. The five-year-old is thinking, I want a mom and dad. And then the judge turns and looks to the mom and dad and he says, are you sure about this? This is a permanent thing. This is forever. This is this is a this is a long-term deal. And the parents say they're yes. And, and one time I remember this this judge being just amazing because he was kind of stern. And he said, "Here's what happens today going forward. Today you get a new last name." Today, everything that happened in the past changes because your parents have chosen to adopt you and love you and you're going to live with them forever. Do you understand that? Maybe. Do you understand what it means that God has chosen you and has adopted you and He paid the price for you? And Jesus' death on the cross, His blood is what bought you, has redeemed you. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Because of Jesus, you have been redeemed. You have been adopted. You have been made a part of God's family. It's not just a today thing. It's a forever thing. And here's the thing. Sometimes adopted kids are just like us as adult Christians. We have a hard time getting, getting away from our past. And maybe adopted kids do some things that aren't very smart. Maybe they act out and whatever. But you know, parents still love them. And sometimes in adoptions, there's really hard decisions that have to be made and really tough relationships that, that come about. But you know, you and I, we always haven't been so easy for God either. When the Bible says that you were a slave to sin, you were. It's all those things that we couldn't escape. And if you're here today and you said, you know what, I I love Jesus and I've given my life to him, but I'm still struggling. You're in good company. You're a room full of people who are still struggling. But here's what I want to encourage you. If you're struggling because of a divorce, if you're struggling because of an addiction or alcoholism or some habit or hobby of yours that you know needs to go away, you can give it to Jesus and you don't have to carry that with you into the rest of your life. Who you were yesterday, who you are at this moment, does not define who you have to be in Jesus going forward. Because when God adopted you, He adopted you into His family forever. And he redeemed you from that life of sin. He redeemed you from those bad decisions. He redeemed you from all of those things that you did that drove you away from him. And when the Bible says that you're a child of God, it means that you're a child of God forever. That's why Paul uses the language of adoption. God chose to love you. Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner. God didn't start to love you when you decided to follow Jesus. God loved you long before that. So wherever you are in your faith today, here's what I want you to know. Jesus paid the price for everything you've ever done wrong. And all it is is a matter of saying, Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I realize God sent you His only Son. You gave your life for me. Jesus, I want to live for you. I accept you as my Savior, but I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to live for you right now. I don't want to live for me anymore. I don't want to just be called a Christian. I want to live as a Christ follower. That's what it is to be adopted. Let's pray. God, thank you that Paul uses language we understand. Thank you that he uses examples from our life 2,000 years later that we can relate to. God, what we can't completely understand is how it is that you love us. We see what we do wrong. We, We want to point to the good stuff. We want to talk about all the things that we do right. But God, in the quiet of the day or the quiet of a night, we know what we do wrong. We know who we are. We know how it is that we've broken your heart and not done what you've asked us to do. And God, outside of Jesus, there's nothing we can do that will make us righteous before you. There's no way in the world that we'll ever be redeemed from our sin except for Jesus' death on the cross for us. Thank you for Him. God, thank you for what it is that you have done through Jesus that we cannot do for ourselves, that we can be adopted sons and daughters of the most holy God, almighty God, our creator and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in a minute, we're going to have ushers come forward and we're going to receive tithes and offerings. Uh, It occurred to me a while ago that our congregation has changed a bit. Two years ago this month, we started out with a capital campaign. And the reason was we had two things that we wanted to address as a congregation. Now, I'm not quite sure why in God's timing, and I think there's a little bit of God's humor. I'm not quite sure why God called us to do that in the middle of a camp, uh, of a, a covid uh, lockdown because we had talked about it before. And, and this is the time that it was time for us to start. And so the reason for that capital campaign was twofold to help us carry out our mission of loving Jesus, loving people, and teaching people to love Jesus. The first part of that capital campaign was to pay off the second part of the contract with the Methodist Church, which is all the land that basically surrounds this building. Uh, we entered into an agreement with them and we owe them we owed them one million on this land and one point five on the rest. And it was actually less than what we were looking at for everything else we were looking at to move into, and we got all of this. So we started a capital campaign to pay off that $1.5 million, which we still need to do. The second thing was God has blessed us with his most precious part of his world and creation, and that's human souls. And a lot of those human souls are very, long, very young and very little. And we decided to make it a priority for us to build a building where they could gather safely rather than having to run around a campus. Not an expensive building, not a fancy building, just a building that would contain the growing numbers of young people that were coming here in order to meet Jesus and start a relationship with him. That's the second part of the capital campaign. I realize a lot of you have never been really made aware of that, never invited to be a part of it. Uh, we made three month, a three-year commitment, a lot of us did, uh, on this the capital campaign two years ago. And so we've got these cards, they're still here, they're out in the entryway. Uh, if you are new to us and you haven't been a part of this journey, if this is your church home, we would love for you to join us. Because, you know, God has all the money in the world, but the funny thing about God is He gives it all to us. And then we've got the responsibility to give some of it back to him. And really what we're asking is, we're asking if you would like to be joining us in carrying out this mission statement in our area to reach people with the good news of Jesus, the the buckets of grace. And so these are out there. Uh, You want to do a one year to finish out the rest of the year, a one time gift. If you want to be a part of a three year and fill it out that way and break it down like that, we would love to have you be a part of the mission and the ministry that we are about as the open door Christian church. With that, if the ushers would come forward, I'll invite you to stand and we're going to continue to worship. Thank you for your prayers for uh, Israel and for the people of the Holy Land. Uh, the Bible tells us in Psalms that we're to pray for Jerusalem. I'd encourage you to continue doing that. Realize that Israel, as is all of the earth, is all of God's land. And so we need to be praying for all of those people of the Holy Land and for peace. Uh, it's something that seems to be spreading out globally more and more, and so we just need to spend our time as Christians praying as much as we can. Also, we invited you to buy Christmas planters as a fundraiser for our young people, and Cindy challenged you to buy 100. Well, congratulations. You way outdid yourselves, and you bought 144. So thank you for that. Uh, a big part of what allows uh, ministries for our kids to be able to move forward. So thank you very much. Also continue in prayer for Haiti Teen Challenge, Dr. Bolsi, uh, their board, and the people, the men and the women who are a part of that ministry. Uh, it is tough right now in Haiti. Things are, just, things are not working well for those people, and uh, they need our prayers as much as we can. Also, there's a whole bunch of folks that aren't here this morning, but they've got a very good reason, because uh, like 20 of them went down to Bradenton, Florida. I know, a tough duty, right? They went to Bradenton, Florida for the Recovery Church Leaders Convention. And so we've got a whole bunch of our leaders that are down in Florida. Please be praying for them. It is a time for them to learn, to grow, uh, to expand the ministry that God has called Recovery Church to that we get to have as a part of our church family. So lift them up. And then as a part of that, I got a notice about a week ago, they are open. Recovery Church is opening their 50th location. Their 50th location. Yeah. That's really cool. I was joking with Phil uh, probably two years ago. I said, man, this movement is just taking off. You're going to have to be Recovery Church International pretty quick. You just got to get the, the logo and everything down. Now, guess what? They just opened one in Costa Rica. It is now Recovery Church International, which is really cool. Yeah, so good for that. Uh, good for them. And thank you for helping to be a part of that. Uh, the prayer lights are open, which means these two ladies who are here to be on the front line of the battle that we are waging against the powers and the principalities of this world are up here to pray f- with and for you. Uh, lines will politely form. I said lines, and last week we had five people at one of them. So I'm just going to keep saying the lines. The lines are going to form here. Please come on forward and, and, and uh, take advantage of that opportunity to have them pray with you. Uh, last thing, here's what I want you to go before, but think about before you go. God chose you and God adopted you because you, even in your sin, the Bible says, were worth saving. Jesus gave His life for you even while you were still a sinner. That's how important you are to God. If you think you don't matter, God adopted you because you were worth saving. Now what we get to do is we get to spend the rest of our lives not trying to, to meet all the criteria and all the conditions of being a good Christian. No, we get to go live for Jesus because Jesus has paid the price for our salvation. We get to walk through life splashing those buckets of the good news of the gospel and grace. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Next week we're going to talk about the power of God in your testimony. One more song before we go. Thank you for coming everybody. Have a great week.